We have exciting news. Our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now for pre-orders from all major retailers. And we have a special offer. Once you pre-order, share your proof of purchase with us and receive a copy of our first chapter. Visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for retailer links and all the details. You know, we're so risk-averse as well that mm -hmm. sometimes putting your foot in it could be a source of humor that mm -hmm. means you're human mm -hmm. and then you connect even more because mm -hmm. if you've got a good sense of humor, you can actually turn that around. That was Dr. Leroy Williams, a palliative care physician from Australia based in Melbourne. We talk about how people are cared for in Oz, what's the same and what's different, and how anyone can turn a consultation into a conversation. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Leroy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Leroy, you're a palliative care doctor in Australia, and we'd love to hear a little bit of like how palliative care is delivered in Australia and how that might be different than Canada. Well, I, I know a little bit about the Canadian system, but not a huge amount, but certainly in, um, in Australia, I use the comparison of New Zealand and UK. So I trained in the UK, moved to New Zealand, and I was there for four years and then made the move to Melbourne. Um, and I have seen some differences there. So I think in, in Australia, um, obviously the, the funding system is very different from the UK where it was the national health service and a free system. Um, obviously I work in the public system, uh, but, but, uh, many public care, um, clinicians work in the private as well. Um, so there's that kind of difference. Um, certainly over here. I know in America, and I'm not sure if the same in Canada, so that the kind of hospice is um, usually for people who are dying and it's six months prognosis, um, that kind of funding model. Um, here, we, we tend to have hospices that are mainly with pediatric palliative care. And there might be some services that are called hospices, but most of them are called palliative care units. Um, and they're, they're within... A hospital sort of organization so they're not standalone um, that makes a big difference in terms of what you can and can't do and funding as well so in New Zealand for example many, many of the hospices are um, non-governmental organizations so they're charity based and they often have to fund uh, for services themselves um, and they usually have a community arm to them as well so they're an inpatient unit and a, and a community service um, whereas here, so my service that I work in is an inpatient unit and a consult service, and there's a separate community service, which is again, non-governmental funded, but it, um, it obviously doesn't have beds in the, in the way that it would a hospice would in the UK or in, or in New Zealand. So that's a kind of overview, which I've found. Okay. So who's doing it the best? between New Zealand, the UK, and Australia. <laughs> How would you rank them in terms of providing palliative uh, care? I, look, I mean, I think, you know, we've got those those uh, charts of the lists that have been produced. Um, you know, I, I think we're all trying to do our best in, yeah. in a broken system. 
you know, where the healthcare system we all recognize, especially through COVID, uh, has been broken for a long time. And and we're just trying to do the best we can. And I think listening to some of the podcasts that you guys have done and trying to get this message of hospice and palliative care more upstream, I've I've always had the approach of holistic care. So we all went to med school, we all went to undergraduate, you know, curricula for whatever discipline we trained in. And we were told about holistic care. We were told about this is this is good care. And then you enter the system and you don't see it. Um, and I always thought I was a, a very holistic doctor in terms of when I was a junior doctor. Mm -hmm. And it was only when I came across palliative care, a palliative care nurse um, kind of highlighted to me something about a patient that I was looking after, that I started to realize I'm not as holistic as I think I am. So that's mm -hmm. that's kind of set me down the path of um, of palliative care. But I think that if we were to incorporate holistic care throughout the whole of healthcare, because who mm -hmm. doesn't need to be treated holistically, right? I mean, I, I was at a meeting the other day, and somebody I talked about what palliative care was, and and they said, "Oh, what a pity we have to wait until we're dying until we get that." I said, mm -hmm. "No, mm -hmm. no, everyone yeah. deserves that." Yeah. So, so I that, think we're all trying to do yeah. our best. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the answer for sure. Um, a, a question. So do you, is palliative care taught in the curriculum of med students in Australia? Is it a mandatory part of their training? Um, there is a, there is a, a bit of teaching that goes on. So it can vary. Um, it can vary from one day in the whole of the five, six years. Yeah. Or it can be an av or it can be two weeks. So I think within within Australia, I've heard, you know, two weeks is probably the maximum. I think internationally, yeah. the average is probably a week. So I mean, um, it's a piddlance. It's a spit yeah. in the fire. Whatever metaphor we want to use, it's not enough <laughs> for yeah. people to graduate yeah. medical school and understand that it's their yeah. business. It's not just a specialty, right? It's it's yeah. like you said, you can use whatever euphemism you want, holistic care, patient-centered care, needs-driven care, um, good care, good medicine, human-centered, truthful, realistic, whatever, you know, I mean, we could call it whatever it is, but um, yeah, it's it doesn't get enough real estate in curriculum for sure. Yeah. Okay. And it's difficult to get that real estate, you know. Um, yeah. Everyone's everyone's specialty is having new and new things sort of coming up, but mm -hmm. that kind of art of medicine, and that's kind of where we're coming from mm -hmm. a lot of the time, is because but by the time we see people, they've gone through lots of treatments, yeah. And we're getting back to that whole thing of the art of looking after a whole person yeah. in conjunction with what we know with the medicine, but also from, um, you know, more your more humane perspective I think yeah yeah completely oh we've already got right hot out of the gate right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah. what I want to know where I first um learned of Leroy CN yeah it was us. through social media I um Twitter actually uh is where yeah. we connected Leroy uh I just found that we had similar um similar tweets similar things to say about palliative care and the system and so I think we found ourselves okay. as sort of kindred spirits that's what I would say 
Yeah, look, Sammy, I love those tweets that you that you put out where you've you've obviously gone into someone's home and you've summarized, you've captured the essence of that visit. I mean, the home visit is such a special yeah. thing. You know, you're entering into someone else's home just like we are entering into someone else's lives when we yeah. when we see them as clinicians, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's the little things that you spot and it's how you summarize them in those tweets mm-hmm. that really hit home. And I think it they, they really bring the, the essence of that person and what matters to them. So Leroy, you were the past president of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Palliative Medicine. What did that role entail? Well, that role, that role um, was being the president of the Specialist Society um, between Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was... It was a difficult role because we had COVID that happened. We had some fires mm-hmm. in in Australia before that. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole um, assisted dying bills in Australia and New Zealand uh, came up and mm-hmm. different states in Australia got different legislation. In New Zealand, it's the whole country that's, uh, that they've had their assisted dying uh, legislation. So there was a lot to deal with yeah. in that presidency um covid took a huge chunk and we tried to Mm -hmm. produce some guidelines um looking at what our colleagues in the uk had done because they had obviously Mm -hmm. had the first well had some of the first um cases coming to them and obviously the states as well so we we kind of looked at what everyone else is doing and tried to prepare everyone over here Mm -hmm. as best we could Mm -hmm. um that was not only on an organizational level but it was also on a state level and also from a an international new zealand and um, Australia perspective. Mm-hmm. But you brought this up and I was, it was something that I wanted to ask you about because in Canada, we re- not recently in 2016, we had the medical assistance in dying legislation, but in Australia, you call it VAD, voluntary assisted death, I think, um, was recently passed uh, in some places and in, in New Zealand as well. So how has that impacted your work? I mean, it's been very con- controversial, I think, on some level, at least among the palliative care field here in Canada. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, look, um, we had it in Victoria first, the first state. Um, And yeah, voluntary assisted dying is what it's called here. Mm. And I think, you know, my perspective is it has disrupted our work. So certainly um, what we're trying to do with patients uh, and to manage their symptoms at the end of life, I I think many people, because they haven't understood the legislation, a lot of the public are asking for it far too late. Mm. So they're not, they don't realize they have to be of sound mind to have that discussion and, mm-hmm. and um, get all the paperwork sorted out that they need to. So that's one issue. There, there probably aren't enough doctors who are, put their hand up to do it. Mm. And that's another you know, thing that we can think about in terms of why that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also kind of while you're trying to manage someone's symptoms, uh, they don't want any drugs that's going to make them mm-hmm. maybe not have capacity to ask for voluntary assisted dying. So they mm-hmm. are holding off pain medications. They are holding mm-hmm. off um, anxiolytics that might actually help them to be a mm-hmm. bit calmer in in their distress. Mm-hmm. So it has has a had an effect on how we do palliative care mm-hmm. and we're still in the process of working with that. I think in all, all the states are, are going to be reviewing that. And certainly I've I've had a lot of people come and ask me um, how we've managed it and the things that they need to look out for because we were the first state 
uh, involved. Mm -hmm. You don't have to answer this, but are you, um, have you been involved in either doing assessments or provisions of voluntary assisted dying? No, no, I haven't because, I mean, I think from my perspective, I, I think the medical profession has had obviously a line on this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And my perspective, like I said, is about holistic care. And I want to see that everyone has that opportunity to get holistic care mm -hmm. or the care that they need before we make that decision or before they, mm -hmm. you know, get out that line, people, mm -hmm. people need to be fully informed. Mm -hmm. um, and at the moment we already know there's, there's these conversations are not happening. The funny. access to the to palliative care is not happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore people are making decisions when potentially they could have help. Yeah. And so like anyone who has suicidal ideation in any time of life, Mm -hmm. we need to be providing that support for them. We know how important mental health is. We mm -hmm. saw that in, during COVID. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to have an illness mm -hmm. to feel depressed or feel maybe that your life wasn't worth living. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the legislation allows for those people to end their lives before they've actually had the help that they potentially could have, mm -hmm. then that's a disservice, I think, to them. So I've kind of wanted to make sure that we can provide good holistic care and good palliative care and good support for people mm -hmm. um like I said in a broken system mm -hmm. um and I think that the other thing is as you've seen in Canada how do you compare one suffering to another how you know there could be someone who's working three jobs with four children at home living mm -hmm. in a really poor area mm -hmm. um you know that they will be suffering they may not have any illness whatsoever but they will mm -hmm. be suffering there'll be a suffering of some sort mm -hmm. and so how do you deal with their suffering mm -hmm. uh, and we've also had cases where people have um have been refused not ref well you know not not been eligible mm -hmm. and so therefore they haven't been able to go down the line and then they're sort of left and and if we're there then we can help to support them but if we're not involved that mm -hmm. becomes a problem because they they do feel that they've been cheated. Yeah. So there's many issues around. It's very contentious, but that's my personal view. And I haven't mm -hmm. been involved in any of them. I have been involved in cases where we've been providing the palliative care alongside mm -hmm. um, because we thought that was important to continue to provide that. But that the other side would be done by other people. Yeah. So I guess the bigger question is how do we get holistic care to people who are facing progressive life-limiting illness as early as possible in their illness journey so that yep. they don't um, roll down the hill and, you know, yep. land at the bottom and need, you know, voluntary assisted dying because no one <laughs> bothered to stop the rolling yeah. and, you know, provide help. Um, yeah. We, we, we but, receive people in so broken, don't we? usually yeah 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 um you know I think that there's so many times where it's down to good luck who you would see as a clinician to yeah. get that kind of care that you should be having anyway yeah. and this is why this you know what you're you guys are trying to do is is hugely important because we need people to to say actually no I need to be treated as a whole person I need to mm -hmm. be having my my questions answered um mm -hmm. we need and this this shared decision making yeah. uh that is the term that's used but yeah. but you know um 
if you actually look at it, how you teach shared decision-making is very is not really known. I mean, we, we talk mm -hmm. about this term, but we, we haven't really incorporated it into teaching clinicians. And really it's just listening and being curious and you know, understanding that person's journey, their life, and mm -hmm. how this illness is, is affecting their life and how their decisions might change accordingly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So everyone, like you say, everyone should be doing this uh, yeah. when they see when they see patients. And, and I think the other thing is patients. We use the word patients, but we're all patients, so we're all going to be patients. Yeah. And so it it you know means that we do have to think about having the conversations in the right way and as early mm -hmm. as possible. Yeah, it's not fair to only receive holistic care if you just happen to stumble upon a palliative care specialty team at the yeah. very end of an illness. Uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 too little, too late. Like we're behind the eight ball. You know, we we're working against the the ticking clock. You know, at that point. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Okay, do so you, do you think you're getting there in Canada? Do you think you're you're changing that landscape? Um, I think there's a lot of effort, um, and I believe that there's a lot of really passionate people who are trying very hard to move that dial. But as I've said before, unless we embed this as a mandatory skill set in the curriculum of all healthcare providers, we're always going to be chasing our tail. Um, it'll always be considered a specialty. It will always be positioned at end of life. And we'll never capture all the people that really require this kind of care. And so um, I, 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 I still believe there are millions of people headed down the pipeline with, you know, care that isn't holistic. Um, it's, mm. it's focused on reducing them to an illness or an organ or a bed or a number uh, until they land in our laps and we stitch them back together. So I don't think it's changing, but I think there's a lot of people trying hard. Yeah. But, but I think that's why, you know, we have spent so many years under this idea of the waiting room revolution, because I think the, our belief after all this time is we will see the biggest change and the fastest change if we can activate patients, families, the public to come to the system with new questions, with a new uh, insight into how to get this information. We've said before, we can't change the experience, uh, we can't change the illness, but we can change the experience. And so, mm -hmm. so much attention has been on training healthcare providers on mm -hmm. how to uh, have good conversations or communication skills or provide good medicine or, uh, but the public, the patients themselves are still in the dark. So I think we're yeah. trying to work on this other side um, with simple questions that aren't, you know, framed in a palliative care, you know, toolkit, but rather in a, you know, what people wish they'd known sooner. And how do I get the most information? How can I be hopeful and prepared all throughout um, as early as they can for, you know, the person with the illness and their family? So I guess I'm just curious because you've, you know, been following us for a while. Like, what are your thoughts about... Our, this idea of the revolution, the podcast, the skills, the seven keys that we're really trying to to promote. Look, I, I think it's a much needed um, approach. I mean, we look, if you're not making the changes within the healthcare system, you've got to go to the public and make them understand mm -hmm. what they're entitled to, what questions they should be asking when they come in, mm -hmm. realizing that not all clinicians are the same. 
yeah. and that it's important to get their their story across that they understand mm -hmm. that we as clinicians understand their lives what we're trying to do is help people get the holistic care um at the very beginning of their illness and throughout their illness so that they'll naturally get a palliative approach but they don't have to ask for it because as soon as they ask for it people will say oh you don't have to go there yet or oh you'll get that at the end oh oh you don't need that yet we're going to try second third line chemo so it's it's not as easy as people asking for palliative care. They almost have to, again, ask in ways that they get what they need <laughs> with, without, um, you know, using the P word, which, you know, we all talk so much about, should we call it palliative? Should we not call it? Should we call it something else? But anyway, that's what we're trying to do is leech out of the system what the patients and families need without labeling it. Yeah, and I think also bringing the different perspectives of your guests that you've had on um you know just gives you a little bit of an understanding of what other people are doing and how they're trying to approach the same problem mm -hmm. and the successes that they've had and and sort of where they may have done things differently i think those are mm. really important learnings for us all to sort of again move things forward yeah move the dial forward okay is the dial moving in australia Look, I think there is a little bit of movement because we're getting a lot of trainees who are doing dual training. Um, and of course, when they do the dual training, they can bring that back to their own specialty mm -hmm. um, or, or to the other half of their specialty. So as dual mm -hmm. trainees, they can be specialists in pal care or geriatrics or mm -hmm. you know gen, general medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but you, we're also getting some people where they would do six months of a clinical diploma in palliative medicine. Mm -hmm. So that's another option um, where they can, we can introduce them to what palliative medicine is like from a specialty perspective. Mm -hmm. So they they come into an accredited position, and then they go, they have that as part of their training for their mm -hmm. specialty, and then they can obviously bring that into that specialty. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's been a really good way for the for a, from an educational perspective that we've given people an opportunity to see mm -hmm. good holistic care, good palliative mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. And then be able to say, okay, right, now I've got that comparison. Oh, I can see where the gaps are. Yeah. And then start to make some changes within their own specialty. So I think there is a little bit of hope there yeah. that, um, you know, that the junior doctors coming through are getting a little bit more of an understanding of what palliative care is about. I would hope so. That, that's my sense. Yeah, we're starting to do that now as well. Train what we call Royal College. It would be the similar to your dual training. Um, and, and that's the idea is that these people will go back to their specialty and enlighten them um, about, you know, infusing a palliative approach within their own specialty. I, I guess some, some people worry, though, that um, the same thing will happen to them that happened in family medicine, where we trained a bunch of specialists in palliative care, and it excused all of our colleagues in family medicine from thinking they had to do it. So the, the worry is that someone um, who's trained in cardiology and palliative care will set up a palliative care service and then all the cardiologists think they just have to refer to that pal new palliative care trained yeah, person yeah, yeah. as opposed to you yeah. know integrating yeah. the skills so we'll see right let's cross our fingers and hope that it works yeah they I think that that whole that whole specialist generalist kind of thing is is, yeah. is still a problem I think and I yeah. think um like on on Twitter I've said 
you know, you wouldn't expect a cardiologist to deal with all heart problems. Yeah. So, you know, from a pal care perspective, we are supposed to deal with the most most complex cases yeah. of end of life or symptom management uh, while people are having treatment um, that there is, but there should be something that people are doing before then that sort of is doing yeah. their bit. And the problem that we have is because the education is so poor or lacking mm -hmm. when people enter the workplace they need our support from a specialist yeah. perspective to try yeah. and do good good care and so we're stretched doing the most complex as well as dealing with everyone else yes. that needs that support and hopefully we can mm -hmm. get more people learning and say okay yeah I, I, I got this now I'll call you when I need you yeah uh, and that's the kind of model that we've been running for a long long time now decades yeah. because of yeah. that that gap that we are having to bridge that no other specialty is having to bridge yeah you and don't see that in cardiology or gastroenterology no, or respiratory no, no and so uh we will never get ahead until it's embedded in the curriculum if, and yeah. you know so we can train all the palliative care doctors we want it, it's it, we're chasing our tails unless we get to the the um underlying problem the curriculum but what are you most proud of in your career to date how many years have you been working in my as career? Yeah, as a palliative care doctor. Um, I think I'm. I think of what I'm. What makes me very proud is when people have come up to me and said, "I heard you speak here," or "I remember this lecture," or "I remember that mm. encounter with a patient," mm -hmm. and it's it's had an effect on them. They've they've maybe changed the way they practice, or mm -hmm. they've come into palliative medicine. But getting those little bits of feedback, because we all do, we all do our job and we just don't know the ripple effects that we sometimes have. And I think mm -hmm. when when people come up to you and it's also patients and families, when they come up to mm -hmm. you and say, you know, what you said then or what you did then um, really made a big difference. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of feel proud that what I've done has led to that point but also yeah. it's, it's had a good effect that uh, that I wanted to have you know mm -hmm. we can always kid ourselves that we're doing good things mm -hmm. but um you really really get to see that when people come back to you mm -hmm. and it could be years down the line mm -hmm. um they come and say that so that's that's that makes me very proud of mm -hmm. of that and also you know when people in the team um go on and do great things and you've been there in the background supporting them and mm -hmm. uh, enabling them to giving them the confidence to go and do those things mm -hmm. those are, are proud moments and it's a little bit like you know with your family with your kids yeah I love that answer Leroy was I wrong because last time we spoke uh maybe on social media you were thinking of doing a podcast yourself am I not wrong that it's already launched and how's that going what's the title yeah. and tell us about it yeah so um thank you guys for the the help in trying to get some ideas around that so we've called it narratives of connection oh that's um, beautiful obviously the i the idea being that we all learn from stories and we learn from the stories from our patients as well as the stories from you know clinicians as well so mm -hmm. um uh it's it's launched and we've had two guests on so far um i did another um interview with a canadian doctor who's actually working over here but mm -hmm. uh that was a he's a good very good friend of mine so we've kind of done that I'd love to get some um stories of patients and families as well and so I've got a few people who I've asked and 
they've agreed that they would come on. So, you know, it's good to hear anyone's story and how that story has changed them or affected them. And so the kind of structure that we have is, is, is an idea of what's the story that's got you to where you are? What's the story that you're working on now that you feel is important? And then what's the story that you want to leave for the audience to think about into the future? Mm. So that's the kind of rough structure, but it but it's a kind of we go where the conversation takes us. And um, yes, yeah, it's enjoyable. I look I look forward to listening for sure. Yeah. Where, where can we find it? Um, we've got a YouTube channel. Um, so narratives of connections there, but it's also on um, the podcast uh, for iTunes, not iTunes, what is it? Apple Podcasts um, and Spotify. Um, so we've got a kind of link tree thing where it goes to wherever. Um, and actually, I mean, you mentioned that f- the social media was how we we connected, Sammy. But um, and I think I may have, may have mentioned this. My my kind of intro into social media happened because we were teaching medical students in our university it was one day of teaching at the time and my colleague Mm -hmm. Michael Franco who's an oncologist and palliative care physician we were lecturing and we both kind of thought this is not enough we know one day is not enough we need to be Mm -hmm. available and we need to be giving content to people beyond this one day of lecture Mm -hmm. Um, and so we set up a Facebook page and that's palliative Mm -hmm. medicine teaching Mm-hmm. um and we tried to put content up there and then we kind of thought well why should it just be medical students why shouldn't we try and get everyone mm-hmm. more up to speed with what palliative care is about so we opened up we you know made it it's it's there's no kind of membership or anything um mm-hmm. so anyone can log on and they can be patient family uh clinician and so that's grown over the years and we've We've kind of put content up there, communication skills, anything about kind of. Hmm. I really try to base it around holistic care as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a way of us connecting with many people uh, and trying to do exactly what you're trying to do: um, yeah. educate the public about what palliative care is. And aren't you the brilliant mind behind Palmed Ed? Yeah, that's so. Palmed Ed is the Twitter. Uh, the Instagram. Of- and, and Instagram, yes. So we we did yeah. an Instagram and a and a and a Twitter page in relation to the the palliative medicine teaching page. So we had to, I mean, we called it palliative medicine teaching because it was medical students at the time. Mm-hmm. But when we thought more broadly, we couldn't change the name. We we're already far too too far down the line. <laughs> so Palmed Ed became the the hashtag or the the handle for Twitter, and then we did the Instagram later on. How long have you been doing it for the social media? long time um mm-hmm. I want to say 2012 maybe something like that oh the really wow you were uh, um what are they called um when early adopter early adopter yeah well we, we we thought it was a really good way to connect with the the students but also to, to just get the message out because there was no one we had so many families coming in not knowing what palliative care was or, yeah. or you know mixing it up with assisted dying when the legislation was didn't exist mm-hmm. so we just wanted to make sure people realized you know what what it was about and how we looked at people and just mm-hmm. promote that idea that we're trying to look at people holistically isn't that the kind of mm-hmm. care you'd want mm-hmm. and if you're not getting it then you should ask you should go mm-hmm. to when you go to see your your clinicians ask to 
um, either see the palliative care team if that's if you're in that um, point in time, or mm -hmm. you know why why are you not asking me about my my life mm -hmm. in general to understand a little bit more about me? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a perfectly valid kind of question to ask clinicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask this question about race and ethnicity in healthcare access, which relates a bit to some of what you post on your social media. So from an Australian perspective, and being a person of color yourself, how does race ethnicity fit into palliative care access in your country? And do you still have the same type of disparities across the country as we read about here in North America? So I think we do have some evidence that um, the people who get better access to palliative care are usually Caucasian, wealthy, knowledgeable, you know, um, and there's a number of reasons that you, we could sort of propose around that. But I think we want to make sure that we've got equitable access for everyone to get the kind of care they want or they need. So whatever the situation they're in, we need to make sure that it's readily available for that person to get it in a timely fashion. Um, so I think that there are also, I mean, there's also the barriers of referral. So there's not only access and the availability, but there's also the referral. Many a time I've heard the story from the from the patient or the family saying that we were told you weren't ready for hospice or you weren't ready for palliative care yet. Um, or no, 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 I don't think you should be thinking about that now. And so there's a barrier there in the referrer. So we need to take it away from being so dependent on the referrer to mm -hmm. refer. We need to make it something that's much more objective to say, this is what's needed right now. And that mm -hmm. that's part of you know what you're saying, something about integrating mm -hmm. what we're doing. I think the best models have been when you've been integrated into, let's say, within the college oncology um yeah. team. Yeah. So that integration of we're all kind of working against cancer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we're also here to try and support you as best as possible through this, mm -hmm. this um, illness. Mm -hmm. And so that <laughs> lovely dog in the background um, uh, and pet therapy, you know, <laughs> another element of, of what we do. So as part of the integrated team, we, we can provide more benefits, I think. Um, so that's, that's a problem. I mean, we we have to advocate for um, people who are on the who are not getting access, and also people on the fringes of society. We need to actually uh, advocate for their their access to the to services where um, they're at the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, that's so right. I mean, really, it's about person centered care for everyone, um, including the most vulnerable, all the time. So that's what we're really trying to do with this podcast. And, and as you know, our podcast has become a book. And that book is sort of a how-to guide for patients and families to understand how to leach out a palliative care approach from the system without the labels. So I'm curious to know your thoughts as to whether you think this how-to guide is even needed. And do you think that it'll work? Look, Sian, I think that's a, a great idea because giving people the opportunity to have some signposts that they are doing the right things or that and and once they see something that they haven't thought about modeled they can then go away and use that and see what success they get the problem we have with communication skills i think is well first of all 
people have some innate communication skills. They just don't realize it, right? You know, when you're having a drink with a friend, you don't kind of think, okay, is this is this the right environment? Am I am I nodding enough? Um, mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's natural. And when your friend tells you something that is hurting them, you have a natural way of dealing with that. Mm-hmm. I think so. The professional box that we have yeah. to work within puts the pressure on because. Of course, within medicine over many years, mm. people have been told you're not supposed to be emotional. Mm. Um, and of course, things move you. Mm-hmm. You will see one movie, and the reason why that's your favorite movie is because it moves you in some way. Mm-hmm. The other movies don't move, move you, and so therefore, you don't remember them. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with patience. And if that's a natural human emotion that comes out, then mm-hmm. that's useful to connect. So that's part of the problem. So there's that element of people thinking it has to be in a professional box and then and then yeah. they fear that they're going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the element of once you're going from a script that many patients and families recognize it, you know? Yeah. So once they do the kind of lines that mm-hmm. they've heard because mm-hmm. they need a structure, when you're starting, you need a structure mm-hmm. to sort of hang things on. But the... But the problem with the structure is it becomes recognizable and then people start to sort of think, well, you're not being authentic. So I've always tried to um, approach it from an angle of being curious about Mm. the person and who they are and trying to keep it as human as possible. Mm. When I was a a registrar in palliative medicine in Auckland, um, I would know that someone was coming across, so I'd look at their notes. um, And then I would leave any paperwork that I I would go and have a conversation with the family and the patient. And I would just say, tell me your story Mm -hmm. because I I know that I've been given some information, but you tell me your story and we'd have Mm -hmm. a conversation and then it would go wherever. Mm -hmm. And I'd get a sense of who they were, the relationships with the family members that were there. I'd get a sense of how they were stoical or not Mm -hmm. stubborn or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'd say, right, thanks very much. I'm going to go and write this up. Mm -hmm. And then I write my notes and I'd go, give me all your medications take that mm-hmm. chart them all come back that would mean if I had any questions I could come back with the bag of medications and say here's your just add some other things I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. and then it's turned that whole consultation into a conversation oh, I feel like I need to tweet out right away turning consultation into conversation that is awesome uh yes. <laughs> Um, but but I think you're so right that like we can as humans have natural conversations all over the place and we don't need yeah. a, a tool we don't need a workshop we don't need a structured algorithm or set the environment up so why are like we, you said why are we so stiff when it comes to you know just sitting with other humans and talking about how they're doing or yeah. you know um and and you're right it's people are scared that they're going to put their foot in their mouth so that they're going to say the wrong thing. And, and you're right with all the tools out there, they're not flexible and nimble. So they're recognizable, but also they don't allow you to respond to the, the way the patient or family responds to the question. So there, there is the ALOBA model. I don't know if you've heard of that, which is a a gender led outcome based approach. So you go into a consultation and 
our agenda might be to, to just make sure the pain's better and we're going to have a plan for discharge and that the person agrees with the plan for discharge. Mm -hmm. So before we go in, we say, okay, this is our agenda. How are we going to know that it's worked? And mm -hmm. then we'll say, okay, well, the patient will say, my pain's better. And yes, I'm keen to go home tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So one member of the team is going to look out for that, those kind of flags at the end to say we've we've met the the outcome mm -hmm. and then another person is going to look at the whole com skills approach and we go in and we have the consultation you often get in there and the patient's got a very different agenda mm -hmm. now if you try and stay with your agenda it's going to go nowhere yeah so you have to then think okay well you've got a different agenda okay tell me about what's going on for you oh right well you, you can't go forward until you deal with that mm -hmm. so that's that's a really flexible model and yeah. that kind of works very well because you can come back out of the out of the room and then you say to the team what do you think happened there mm -hmm. and then they can say well they had a different agenda and we mm -hmm. had to go and whatever the other thing about it is that also when you go into that approach the emotions so well you can't you can't deal with anything until you deal with the emotions so mm -hmm. we have to be good at dealing with emotions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so that's another problem because obviously clinicians are not taught about dealing with emotions, yeah. Yeah. right? So that's why the comm skills often um, is good to sort of focus on that. That when mm -hmm. we do get the comm skills teaching, sometimes that that really does come to the fore, and people then mm -hmm. go, oh, "Okay, fine. Now I know how to deal with that, or now mm -hmm. I've got to work out a way to deal with that." Mm -hmm. But the other thing about you know we're so risk averse as well that mm -hmm. sometimes putting your foot in it could be a source of humor that mm -hmm. means you're human mm -hmm. and then you connect even more because mm -hmm. if you've got a good sense of humor you can actually turn that around you know th this is why I love working in people's homes because you aren't surrounded by the sterile environment of the hospital or the clinic right and you are communicating with the patient and the family and the family becomes your care team right so you can mm -hmm. only communicate in the most standard human, normal, um, approachable kind of way. Uh, when I have people come with me, you know, they often say, oh, I've never heard someone talk like that. I'm like, we all talk like this. We just don't <laughs> usually do it in these scenarios. But like, why should I yes. communicate any differently when I'm sitting in front of a patient and family than I do, you know, going grocery shopping? Like I'm only human and uh, they're only human. And it does them no good for me to come in on my high horse with my fancy words and you know cryptic kind of approach to you know not really talking about what's right in front of us like yeah. it's um yeah. yeah the home environment which is also a missing piece of the curriculum uh training people in the home environment really does um bring you down a few notches as uh, as a physician to be honest and it's a good thing. It it balances yeah. the power differential that we grow over people's training. You know, it, yeah. it fills that gap a bit. But I love what you're saying about communication. I just love it. We're so glad to have learned more about your work on today's show. So keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, more power to you. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, yeah. I think we need more more people to advocate for people to get the right care in the right way at the right time. Yeah. 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 And the po more power to you too. Seriously. Um, I love Thank what you. I'm hearing. I, I, yeah. yeah.
I'm, I feel I'm gonna, like I'm your gonna... philosophy is very aligned with our waiting room revolution. You can join our revolution. No problem. <laughs> Honorary <ready>. member. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.